So uh, driving in downtown Springfield today, and I see this wonderfully lifted F-150 just decked to the hills in, in paraphernalia. And on the back, in the back window, it read, Jacked Up for Jesus. And so on this day, I want to say cheers to Jacked Up for Jesus. Brings you closer to the Lord. That's right. Literally. How high is he? Uh, for the listeners at home, they did uh, uh, cheers. They did toast. <laughs> Clink their... <laughs> well, it was a can in the there, glass. Ross. Yeah. <clears throat> right. So Transition. <laughs> <laughs> Jazz Club. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Mix Six. Uh, I'm Caleb. I'm Spencer. And uh, thank you very much for those of you who listened to our first episode, gave us some workshop comments as we sort of uh, worked out the kinks of the podcast formula. It was very helpful. We workshopped, as it were. Yes, indeed. Uh, And we are on our second episode now. Uh, Hopefully you're listening to this on a new page that we've just launched. And uh, we'll be talking about patreon and all that kind of stuff later uh what we will say is we have a contact page set up so many of you have asked to suggest beers to us and twist my arm i i guess i'll allow it do it so if you insist i dare you uh you can suggest us a beer uh we may look into having a physical repository for beers to appear at some sort of mail facility that's later right. that's right uh We're put a refrigerator at a post office yes so it's going to depend on that Patreon, turns out. So uh, we'll look into that uh, at one point. Uh, but uh, if you want to hit us up with a beer suggestion, please do that. Um, and we are working on our second episode now. We're going to keep this going. It's it's fun so far. But one of the great pieces of advice we got last time was that we don't have a consistent rating system. Right. right. So what we've decided is we're going to have a five-point rating system. Now, those five points are going to be represented by mascots that will shift every episode. Every episode. Um, and so Spencer got to pick these five, and he's wrong about how he picked them. I'm starting like that. But I'll, I'll just let him explain that to you. So this week, the beer rating system that we'll be using is based on Saved by the Bell characters. All right? So the beer rating system moves from one to five. I'm on board so far. Right. No, I know. A one is a beer that you don't want to drink ever again. A five is the holy grail of beers. This is the beer that you will seek out. You'll, you'll, you'll stockpile it. When they clean out your home upon death, you will have hoarded months and months and years of this beer. So here we go. This week's rating system. A one, which we will apply the rating system to all of our beers. A one is a Jesse Spano, because obviously. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. I'm so scared. Right. Shouldn't even like beer, okay? Mm -hmm. Which is why I don't like She was into pills. That's right. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Take that. A two is an AC Slater, okay? An AC Slater. Let me tell you how I landed on a two. Have you seen that guy? There's like no way he's actually drinking beer and working out that much. Too many carbs. So I assumed he wouldn't be into this. All right. So he's a two. He's a McElter man. Having said that, still better than Jesse Spano. Yes. Agreed. A three, and this is controversial because I originally had three and four swap, but you griped about it a lot. So a three is a Lisa Turtle. All right. Uh, I still think too high. Right. But not a four for certain. Yeah. So, you know, I went with a a three for Lisa, also known as a threesa, uh, because (laughs) it's fashion forward. You like it. Stable. There all the time. You're happy if it, you know, kind of shows up. But you can live without it. All right. Mm -hmm. A four. And this was your point of contention is Zach Morris, also known as a Zach Forrest in this week's rating system. And uh, and Zach would be a five. 
but for a five is a Kelly Kapowski. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And so a five will only be given to a beer who, hypothetically, you would hang a poster of on your wall at like nine or ten years old, and it would totally change how you think about women for the rest of your life. Yes. That would be a five for this beer. It's going to be a psychological milestone in your development. It will change the way you do things as a human. That's a five. I'm much happier with Zach as a four. Yeah. He has time powers. Right. If it's a four. Right. With the amount of... I'm time i'm going to spend drinking that beer i will functionally time travel right right so <laughs> yeah and so uh so just so i get this so when they inevitably remake the Shawshank redemption right then kelly that's the poster that he's gonna be using to hide that escape tunnel that's right uh, that's right oh, please yeah. More- <laughs> channing tatum's gonna that's well, right, dig his way to freedom through yeah, a kelly kapowski poster Kapowski's poster. <laughs> mm-hmm. that's uh, right i look forward to that yeah so. the tim the tim of our times mm-hmm. <laughs> channing tatum so given that's our rating system caleb what are you drinking I am drinking the Free State Beer, beer Brewing Company's mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Oatmeal Stout. It's out of Lawrence, Kansas, Rock Chalk. Yes, mm-hmm. it is quite delicious. Uh, it's described as full-bodied, I would agree, mm-hmm. with a smooth and gentle finish. It's yep. kind of a pronounced nutty aftertaste, mm-hmm. but it moves in slow. Yep. Uh, I will give it a three. I've had stouts I like a little bit better, but yep. it is a perfectly serviceable beer. For serviceable beer. I'm going to give it a three, That's and I'm going to apologize for calling it Lisa Turtle. Right. I think I think what you meant was you're giving it a Threesa Turtle, all right? Yeah. I, on the other hand, am drinking an El Goza from Avery uh, out of Boulder, Colorado. It's described as a German-style sour ale with lime and sea salt added. And I agree with them. There is lime, there is sea salt. Uh, so they didn't I will lie. Yeah, no, they didn't lie at all. So I will give this also a Lisa Turtle um, with, with, if it were colder and I had a lime to put on top of it, the, the opportunity to be a Zach Morris. The opportunity. The college years. That's, That's right. when it elevates. That's right. Gets on that beach. <laughs> All right. So uh, what are we talking about right now? All right. So beer one for us tonight is going to be another edition of Dissecting Our Fun. Last time we got together, we talked about Potion Explosion. Seems like a lot of people have gone out to now buy Potion Explosion in the wake of that conversation. Feel free to send your money this way. We'll give or you games. Address. That's right. Or games. Or beer. I don't know if you heard. Just anything, really. <laughs> we'd, li- we'd like to continue this type of review suggestion opportunity. And this week, we're going to talk about a slightly different game. We're going to talk about Cargo Noir. Yes. Which is a game that you introduced us to some months ago. And we've played a lot of since then. So, Cargo Noir. The premise of Cargo Noir is that you and your fellow players represent one of a variety of different crime syndicates, mobs, mafias, etc. And you are trying to use a dynamically built board based on the number of players to move any number uh, of illegal goods from one area to another area and then make profit by trading those goods in, uh, either for money or for some upgrade in terms of ships, nightclubs, things that you would buy if you were a drug runner, right? Because obviously, if you had drug money, the first thing you would buy would be a nightclub. Yes. Uh, and so the board is set up very interestingly. So the board is a hotspot of, of well, global hotspots, New York, Bangkok, etc. And in Macau. each of those hot, M- Macau, yeah, Macau. And in each of those hotspots, there are a seemingly random number of tiles representing those types of goods that you can traffic. And then in the middle of the board, you can place your markers there, which are little ships because cargo ship. Um, and you're trying to then make a plan for where you would like to put your ships and how you would like to spend your money to outbid people, other players, for those tiles and those goods on the board. You then collect those tiles, and as the game progresses, you get more and more of a certain type of good or more of different types of goods, and you can cash those in for points at a given time. So, Cargo Noir, what do you like about it, and why do we keep playing it? So, 
produced by Days of Wonder, mm-hmm. who made Small World. Great game. Great game. Award-winning. Expansions are good as well. Yep. <clears throat> Interesting mechanic. Probably deserves a segment in and of itself. The reason I like Cargo Noir is because it is basically a worker placement resource management game. Yep. But extremely accessible. Uh, if I was introducing board game noobs to board games more advanced than, you know, the terrible board games right. upon which we torture children with, right, right. <laughs> I would use Cargo Noir because it's fairly simple to understand. Uh, they've got lots of cheat sheets in front of you. So there's an interesting mechanic where if you turn in items that you're smuggling, items that are of different varieties, like if I have gold, uranium, and paintings, right. it is always going to be worth less than if I have paintings, paintings, and paintings. Right. And I always have gold, <clears throat> uranium, and paintings in my purse. Yes. So it totally makes sense. Uh, exactly. Uh, so you can turn in like stuff the second you get it. Right. For a small amount of points, yep. or you can sort of hoard, and you can invest in hoarding until you get these big stacks of uniform tiles That's right. that you turn in for big points. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. The points can only be used to buy these cards that have victory points on it, and the victory points are what you do to win, and you have a limited amount of turns to do it. Right. Otherwise, you're very simple, simplified mechanics. You want something that's on that space. Yep. You put a boat Yep. That indicates you have that turn to use on it. That you want that thing. With money on top of it. That's right. your bid. Yep. Uh, you need more money. Mm-hmm. You go get more money. There's a space for that. Or you have a basically a grab bag of stuff that you can go trading a tile for, yeah. one per boat, or grabbing randomly from the bag. Yep. Yep. So uh, that's very simple. Yep. But there's a lot of deep psychological manipulation in the game. Mm-hmm. I, I often bid on things just to make someone bid more on them and right. kind of drain them of resources. There's a psychological game. You're sort of looking what other people have, what they don't have. Um, with the limited amount of turns, you've got some investment opportunities. So, like, do I buy a warehouse so I can get bigger stacks of similar goods? Or do I buy another boat so I can get an additional turn to move on. See, and that's kind of what I like about the game. So I was, I was thinking about this really critically. There are two reasons that I really, really enjoy playing this game. And the first one is exactly what you're talking about. There's no middle ground in this game. So you're going to make a decision kind of early on if you're going to play fast or if you're going to play slow. And I feel like one strategy then is to say, I'm going to try to get as many tiles. I don't care what they look like as I can. And I'm going to trade them in over and over and over again to accumulate small things to get to big things. The other strategy is the long-term investment strategy that you've mentioned, which is the I'm going to start investing in one thing, and I'm going to invest until I have to get rid of it, and I can maximize my bang for buck on that thing. Yeah, I like that there's no middle ground in this game, and because there's a limited number of turns, I think nine or ten turns for two or three players, 11 turns for three or four players. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. You have to make that decision kind of early. If you make that decision on turn five – you know, you've wasted your opportunity to maximize your investment, or you've wasted four, ter- four turns of just burning through things to get as many small things as you possibly can. Love the speed requirement of that of that strategy. And you have to commit really quickly. You got to really commit to it if you want any hope of winning. Right. And the investment strategy it is a commitment because there is no immediate payoff. You are sitting around while other people are collecting victory points, collecting warehouses and nightclubs, so that on turn eight, nine, ten. You can start cashing stuff in like crazy uh, and watch everybody else just kind of cry from the pier, as it were. You know, the second reason I love this game is because rounds take place in phases. Mm -hmm. So in a given round, if the three of us were playing, uh, we would all have the same amount of information for that round. I'd know that what you bid on and what producer Ross bid on and what I can bid on. I'd also Mm -hmm. know what all of us have available to us in terms of money and other goods. 
Those things are not going to change until that round ends, and we've all had an opportunity to play with the same board. I like that rather yes. than the game changing every time you take a turn and then I take a turn and then Ross takes producer Ross takes a turn. Excuse me, I almost forgot his first name. Uh, he has a title. Yeah, producer <laughs> Ross. That's that's on me. And so I like that. Uh, you know, much like we said with Potion Explosion, that there is a perfect information element to the game based in rounds. Yes, it is uh, excellent in that regard. The initiative mechanic is good. <clears throat> minimizes first player advantage and a lot of things like that. Yeah. And with the bid mechanic and the ability to overbid and go back in on right bids, uh, it really sort of negates that sort of first mover mechanic that you see a lot in limited turn games. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and like I said, just very accessible. The boats are of like extremely high quality. They kind of feel like bathtub toys. Yeah. Uh, very maybe, thick plastic. Maybe I've used them as bathtub toys. I won't judge. Uh, Bring your own version of Cargo Noir next time. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, and leave the bathtub toys. (laughs) Fair enough. Uh, The coins are large, very large board. uh, So there's this tactile enjoyment. The tiles, you got a bag. You're swishing your hand around in them. It feels like you're deciding whether you're a witch or not. It's great. Uh, So it is very accessible. It's a good game to introduce people to games. That's right. Uh, Potion Explosion is a great game. But, like, the mechanic and the tactileness is weird enough that, like, if I've only played Monopoly and learned to hate, that if I'm trying to get kids back into board games, if I'm bringing out all the advanced machinery of that, I feel like it might intimidate people. Right. Whereas, like, uh, Cargo Noir looks like it could be a roll and move. Mm -hmm. And then you sort of, like, show people gradually that it's not terrible and it's actually fun. That's right. And they're not just going to endlessly circle this bitch until (laughs) everyone gets tired and leaves. That's right. Uh, speaking of getting tired and leaving, I'm out of beer. How about you? Yeah, let's get another one. On to the next thing. Hey, Spence, what are you drinking? People have long told me, as I've gotten into sours, that I had to try the Lagunitas Aunt Sally. And despite the fact that I have not liked a Lagunitas beer, sorry, please still feel free to send free beer, <laughs> uh, Lagunitas beer, I decided to take them up on it tonight. Having tasted it, I can comfortably tell you, this is the AC Slater of beers. <laughs> Big arms, great hair, doesn't perform when you Doesn't know how a chair works. Nope. Nope. <laughs> Rikers every chair in the room. That's right. Sabotages your, you know, singing audition. Hates you because maybe you're a little bit preppy uh, and ruins your day because you spent money on the beer. Yeah. So, thanks. Also looks kind of sweaty. Yeah. So, while I drink, what are we talking about? Well, uh, top five was good last time. It was great. We're going to flip it, though. Yep. We're going to do bottom five. Bottom five. Superhero movies. Bottom five superhero movies. In Armchair Director today because uh, I like a lot of superhero movies. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are a lot of great superhero movies. But... I honestly am going to have a more difficult time picking a bottom five. Because when a superhero movie goes wrong, I feel personally slighted. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> and so it's like ranking insults against my, you know, my very soul and yep. my upbringing. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'll go first. Five, meaning... The fifth worst. Yeah, the fifth worst. Yep. Uh, the least of the five terrible ones I'm going to put up in terms of, like, punishing me which right. is not a small amount no it's but, just a but comparative if you had amount. to watch one of these five films i i suppose i would watch this one okay. i guess uh thomas jane's the punisher wow didn't even cross my mind 
uh, because it was so shitty and forgettable, <laughs> yeah. maybe, that it left your brain. It fled from your memory. Uh, there's a level of bad that is burned in forever like a cattle brand. This isn't it. This is a stink. You can't wash it off here like you're a tanner at that place that processes the cattle. Wow. Uh, it is so easy to get a Punisher movie right. So so easy. The math suggests but it's the not. empirical evidence kind of right. Right. Says you know, D- Daredevil season two. Yeah. Okay, that's they it, did though. it. That, they it. did it just fine. Dolph Lundgren's Punisher is better than this Punisher that. and more intelligible. They also it's, had but the it, single most <laughs> beloved Punisher storyline ever written, and they started adapting from it. Uh, pulling from the Garth and his Steve Dillon run, and they'd already started the Max run by the time it went into development, which is where the entirety of season two Daredevil Punisher comes from. Right. And lo and behold, it's actually good because if you can make a horror movie, you can make a Punisher movie. So, so here's my thing. They're- but they added John Travolta for reasons, and it took place in the Caribbean. You know, that noir city urban backdrop of the Caribbean. <laughs> the Caribbean. Yeah. <laughs> So, here's here's the thing. The fact that I didn't even think about this movie might mean that you're right, that it belonged on the list, but it didn't even cross my mind. The, the hardest distinction I had when making this list was not one through four. It was what to cut out for five. So, how do I close the gate? So, I've got four movies listed. I'm going to go with my gut. The fifth worst superhero film of all time is X-Men Origins Wolverine. Oh, it's on my list, but it is it's way higher climate. up. Yeah. So, so <laughs> here's my reasoning. Because I couldn't decide between that, Ben Affleck's Daredevil. Uh, Spider-Man 3 for ruining an otherwise really interesting Spider-Man series, or Halle Berry's Catwoman. And I quickly quickly moved <laughs> away from that. You actually saw that. Yeah, no, I totally saw that. <laughs> I saw it enough to know that I hate it, is what I'm saying. I really wanted to put that on the list, yeah. but I have to be honest with myself. If it's on, I watch it and just cackle. Yeah. Because <laughs> it is some of the worst decision-making ever done in film. I, I've decided not and to And the fact that it. it occurred the same year as Monster's Ball. Right. Is just exquisite irony. I've decided not to include it because I don't even think it qualifies as superhero film at this point. It's just weird. Whatever that was, it wasn't that. So I'm going with X-Men Origins. Simple explanation. It functionally ruined two franchises at once, (laughs) Deadpool and Wolverine, and that's incredibly difficult to do unless it's this movie. So that's my number five. What's your fourth worst? Okay. Uh, Again... Probably a movie you forgot about as being a superhero movie. I'm wow. going to guess it's not on your list. Wow. Did you think we were doing most forgettable superhero no, films? No. I, no? Okay. Films I would least want to watch again. Right. right. All right. Spawn. Oh, my the God. The live action one. Wow. Yes. With wow. John Leguizamo? Yes. With John Leguizamo yeah. annoying the shit wow. out of every frame. Wow. The, the celluloid <laughs> is trying to run away from that movie because uh-huh. it's got Leguizamo. I think that's hateful. Uh, wow. I, I, it's an awful film. It's also the pinnacle of everything wrong about comics. So if you The dis- 1990s, in other words. Yes. Yeah. If you dislike, say, uh, Batman v Superman being too edgy, awful, and dark. <laughs> It is the quintessential, like, the progenitor of that idea of, like, comics should be miserable and gross-looking and disgusting and edgy, and it gave Todd McFarlane money, and (laughs) there's no end to its crimes. I'm going to be honest with you. I've not seen this movie all the way through. I think I did. There is a reason for that. Right. It's because it's awful. 
Okay, so my number four, um, a little more mainstream for those of you that actually watch films other people watch, uh, is and, – and this goes back to – so maybe you were thinking about things that you'd never want to watch again or other people forgot they watched in the first place. Weird with the bottom five. How would I have come to that conclusion? I was thinking about things that people have actually seen and universally hated. So I get, I get where we got mixed up there. Um, and I couldn't get out of the what also ruined not just my childhood but entire franchises. So fourth worst for me is X3 The Last Stand. See, tortured, it's not on my list because that's one thing I really wanted to put on there. It is miserable. It does terrible things. And yet things. you remembered The Punisher and Spawn <laughs> rather than actually putting it on. Because that, X-Men yeah. recovered. Spawn and Punisher did not. Okay. Punisher had to flee to TV. Punisher did not. Not even though. TV, Netflix. To be honest, I'm kind of surprised out of the Punishers, you chose that one and not Punisher Warzone, uh, the one with the back oh, open. I crack. forgot about Punisher <laughs> well, Warzone. Well, well, well. <laughs> Welcome to the game. Uh-huh. And they had a better cast, too. Like they See, had- I, I am tortured about this five. Okay. Like, yeah. Yep. God, that movie's awful. Yeah. So, but actually, it did actually. I, I could, will say, I will say, I'm sticking to my choice because Warzone. If you listen to the defense on how did this get made, yeah, it makes you sympathetic. Yeah. To the director. Like, I just. I, yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah. X three is an abortion of a film. Go it, on. It's um, so the, all they've done since X three is remake X Men films. Uh, making jokes about how bad X3 was and trying to forget it. And if a if a franchise literally has to reset itself so hard that it makes jokes that it is being mildly unconscious to your existence, it was a bad film. Which that franchise has officially had to do twice now That's right. with X-Men Wolverine. Unbelievable. Uh, what's number three for you? Third worst. Uh, third worst is Ang Lee's The Hulk. Because uh, people I want to see in my superhero film. Nick Nolte. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not the top of that list. No. Eric Bana, though? <laughs> yeah. Eric Bana? Okay, yeah. There were some okay casting. Jennifer Connelly, she was an okay oh, uh, yeah. love interest. Yeah. But what didn't go wrong? It was four hours long. <laughs> Ang Lee apparently thinks I have compound eyes because he split the screen like comic book panels multiple times. and had simultaneous stories going on each comic book panel. Mm-hmm. And you know what? Truffaut fucking calm down it's a hulk movie i want to see him smashed up the cg was not there uh technologically why he no. looked like a giant smurf yeah um also wasn't sam elliott the general in that one i could be wrong but that's a waste of sam elliott yeah. in a perfect part in an otherwise terrible film that has a giant radioactive gamma ray infused hulk poodle fight i don't i don't remember he fights a french poodle that is as large as a dire wolf amongst other domesticated animals. Is this true? I am not making this up. Are you sure? That is the major point where Hulk like hulks out. He is fighting dogs that Nick Nolte have hulkified, one of which is a toy poodle that is now as large as a Volkswagen Beetle. Huh. The only two things I remember about Ang Lee's The Hulk... Uh, is one the New Yorker article I read, which talked about how, which was a description of the Hollywood screenwriting process, and talked about how there were thirty drafts from like fifteen different writers for this movie, uh, and just you know the whole how the sausage gets made for Hollywood blockbuster scripts, right? And it's fascinating that was. And the other thing from the actual movie, all I remember is watching like. Hulk get machine gunned, and the animators for some reason had the bullets. They couldn't pierce his skin, but they could cause his pectoral muscles, his breasts, to ripple. Hmm. So, like, mm-hmm. that's literally the only thing right, I remember. Right. Like a waterbed. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. Like a, that didn't poke. Yeah, like, yeah. That's yeah. that's how they thought his physique would respond right. to 
heavy machine gun. A fight. terrible. Fight. Well, he gets extra skin when he hulks, obviously. <laughs> uh, and okay, uh, cultural tragedy, which just seems to be something you want out of yours. Wow, Angley, fantastic director. Yeah, very skilled work. Mm-hmm. Directs his first superhero film. Right. It is an atrocity. Yes. It sort of ghettoizes the entire genre. Yeah. As if, like, look what ruined Ang Lee. Oscar-winning Ang Lee touched a superhero movie, and his hand withered and blew away in the wind. Yeah. Like, uh, so, yeah, it it sort of ghettoized the genre for years where it didn't belong. I, uh, yeah, I I appreciate that. That, that, uh, That rings more true to me than this Hulk poodle thing. Which is actually probably more of a teaser for me than you anything. think I'm making that up. Don't I you? don't know. Uh, as far as I know, the Punisher and Spawn happened, so I don't. I don't totally know. <laughs> okay, third worst for me, and I struggled because this one originally was the worst. Then it was the second worst, and I've decided that that time has healed some wounds. It is now the third worst. The third worst superhero film of all time is Superman Returns. And I screamed, and I screamed about this last week. I made two comments, in fact, last week. Uh, as I went back and listened to the pod. Um, one, you fuck with the House of L, you fuck with me. Yes. I feel strongly about that. And two, that Superman Returns was almost perfect for the first 45 minutes. Both of those things are intimately true here. You didn't uh, like that part where they threw a piano so, so into a guy? I, I just want to tell a quick I like when he was Space Jesus and he, when he fell back <laughs> in the atmosphere with his arms out. Which time? <laughs> a quick personal story here about Superman Returns. <laughs> Uh, I saw Superman Returns on opening night. In fact, Caleb, you and I, and a group of our closest friends at the time, waited in line for almost three hours to yes. see Superman Returns at midnight. We were six miles away from the theater before you spoke to us again. Yes. So, so then <laughs> the first hour was like was like my childhood come to life. You know, the unfortunate thing of being my age is that I didn't get to grow up with the Christopher Reeve Superman on big screen. Mm-hmm. So it was the first big screen iteration of Superman I was going to get. And that plane scene is perfect. money. It is exactly what Superman is supposed to be. It, he is landing a plane full of people, including Lois Lane, in a baseball stadium. Yep. He just should have been wearing an American cape for a flag. Okay. That's it. That's, that is Superman. Um, and then, lo and behold, whammy, it's his kid. And you had to pull me down from walking out of the theater. Uh, and then I didn't say another word for probably probably another two hours. We I, thought something had happened medically. It was, it was as close as I hope I ever come to actually having a heart attack and or losing my shit in a public place. I, I literally had to figure out if I just pissed myself or not out of sheer rage because my whole body went numb. So you're going on that deflation thing. A little bit, yeah. yeah. Like, expectation. Right. Violated. Poo. Right. All right. Uh, I will go, and my number two is also X-Men Origins Wolverine. Oh, wow. Because way uh, up the list. Expectation was high. Sure. Deadpool, yay. Yep. Ryan Reynolds playing Deadpool, double yay. Double yay. Thought it was good. Enjoyed Wolverine the other films. X2 had come out. Thought he was boss in that because he stabs people. Man. Like, that's what Wolverine does. Got a shit He's, in his hands. He's stabbity. Um, Brian Cox as Striker. I love me some Brian Cox unapologetically. My all-time favorite character actor. Wanted to see him in everything. And that movie is atrocious. It's unwashably boring. It's achingly long. The fight choreography isn't very good. Nope. They ruin the franchise. They ruin the franchise within their own movie. Like, they violate canon... Like, as X3 is coming out. Yeah, like... It's still our only exposure to Gambit, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. And then you have, like, Cyclops being in a cage with Storm. Yeah. Being experimented on by a horrible guy. Wolverine literally saves their lives. And then what about that first movie when there's, like, who are you? Yeah. Who are you, strange, grizzled man who I owe my entire existence to? And he's like, I don't know. Like, 
And then you explain it with an adamantium tipped bullet? What the fuck? Brilliant. Like, Absolutely brilliant. Oh, they had three endings? Like, it was so shitty they couldn't think of a way to, like, finish it? Right. Oh, it was just so bad. So my number two, and it's actually a collection of two films. If pushed, I'll choose one over the other. But my second worst superhero film of all time, the Joel Schumacher Batman films. So of of that pool, oh, you can't have two. Okay, fine. I'll say Batman and Robin, which is all the right. second of is the Is that the two. one with Poison Ivy? Uh, yes. yes. Okay. And uh, the freeze puns. Yeah. yeah. All of them. Right. So I, I remember seeing that movie in theaters with a friend. Ditto. And we kept making so many, like plant-based puns on poison ivy you yeah, know yeah uh, uh that people in the theater had to yell at us to shut up and that was the only enjoyment i got out of that entire movie it's frustrating that people in theater weren't yelling at the movie to shut up because it was literally <laughs> so I, I rewatched that movie some months ago because i thought you know i'm older i'm wiser maybe like a fine wine it has become better what has in fact happened is like a dumpster fire it has grown more disgusting <laughs> and even smellier and they literally introduce mr freeze by having Commissioner Gordon come up on a screen in the Batmobile and saying, there's a new villain in town, he calls himself Mr. Freeze, and he's doing some shit. That's it. That's the whole introduction of one of the greatest villains in Batman canon, is some guy on a mini screen in the ugliest looking Batmobile ever made. Literally more pathos than any other Batman villain. Like, you care about Mr. Right. Freeze. Yeah. You understand why he's gone mad. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's off. Uh, that was the la- sort of the last stand. Of the let's hire people who loathe the genre of comic books well, I, I, to direct our comic book movies. I think it's because, no, I, I, it's so much that they – I think it's not that they hate comic books. It's that they thought comic books should be the Adam West version of things and yeah. just do it more so. That's kind of – Like camp. Right. Like it's, a, it's like they just – they stop paying attention to comics after – Adam West Batman yeah. and just assume that they could just update it for the 90s. Right. Because and that was it. Joel Schumacher's Gotham is a cabaret of Gotham, right? Yeah. You know, Tim yeah. Burton has, has got this incredibly gothic appeal to Gotham. It's beautiful to look at. What if it was all neon, though? Right. And then, yeah, exactly. It's like, <laughs> what if we put strobe lights, though? You know? And suddenly people thought, well, yeah, I mean, maybe Batman could dance a little bit more and we'd have ourselves a movie. And they called it Batman and Robin. Yeah. So here we are. We reach the pinnacle. You get to go first. The worst superhero film of all time is Spider Man 3. Really? Of it, all time. It invents a problem that has plagues superhero movies to this day in that you have this brilliant franchise. That gets better in two. Tobey Maguire's Thunderman, supremely unrated, underrated to this day as a result of this film. And why does Spider-Man 3 fail aside from emo Tobey Maguire venom dancing uh, <laughs> and a number of other terrible choices? Too many villains. Too many villains. It invents the too many villain problem. And by inventing the too many villain problem, it poisons the well. Yes. And this goes throughout the entire genre. Like, X3 has it. Uh, too many villains. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could argue the last Nolan Batman has the it. The last Garfield Spider-Man has it. Yeah. 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 The Absolutely. last Garfield Spider-Man. They literally repeat the same error yep. with the same franchise. Yep. They've rebooted precisely because... Spider-Man 3 was so bad. Yep. If you want to talk about ripple effects of suck, Fair. Spider-Man 3, we're still suffering from it. It's true. It's true. It's the great recession of superhero films. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Except for this one that you forgot and didn't make it into your top five, and fuck you, we're not friends anymore. <laughs> the worst superhero film of all time is Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice, and it's not close. <laughs> that All the other movies you've talked about that do or do not exist aren't even in the rearview mirror of the Batmobile on this one. It is the worst fucking superhero film ever made. I'm not even. I, 
I'm honestly so pissed at you right now for not including in a list that I don't even know that I want to give you an argument as to why it's so fucking bad. All right. Again, it's probably a personal thing because I never paid to watch it. I've never <laughs> once paid to watch it. Mm-hmm. And the second time I watched it, I was not watching it. I was watching your face as the light drained from your eyes, which <laughs> I, I took a pleasure in. I don't want to like examine that too deeply. I, I'm not going to give Zack Snyder credit for it. but right. All of the other films we've talked about are at least fun for me because I can watch them and I can go, do you see how horrible that was? And then I can come up with an explanation that people would be like, absolutely. I don't even get the pleasure of doing that with Batman vs. Superman because we all already fucking get it. It was that bad. We know it was that bad. And DC's answer to it was, let's make more of them. <laughs> it's the worst superhero film of all time. That you didn't include it in your top five. I think it's just the fact that notice that yours number one is a DC icon. Right. And my number one's a Marvel icon. Is it like sixth on your list? Seven? Yes. Yeah, it's like six. Okay. It's so, six. So, so, so the worst superhero film of all time couldn't crowd out, and, and excuse me if I've already forgotten these films again, <laughs> The Punisher or Spawn? Because I haven't seen the ripple effects yet. Yeah, yeah. okay. Uh, yes, you have. It's called the DC Universe, not on television. <laughs> time for you to get another beer. We'll be right back. All right. Caleb, what are you drinking? I am drinking Shakespeare Oatmeal Stout by Rogue. Mm. Excellent choice. Wonderful you, sir. Um, and I am very interested in it. It's got sort of a dark chocolate bitter aftertaste mm-hmm. that hits you in the back of the throat. Mm-hmm. But it's subtle enough that I'm just like, hmm, mm-hmm. you're not like everyone else in this bar. Things that make you're you kind of hmm. interesting. Mm-hmm. 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 Maybe you're going to talk an iambic pentameter. Maybe, maybe we're going to have a discussion about literature. Wow. So I'll give, this a, I'll give this a Zach Morris. I, w- I want to hear more. Whoa. That's our first four. Yeah, it's no Kelly Kapowski, but like it's, I've, I've, I've drank many an oatmeal stout. Right. right. Uh, and it's definitely unique in that. It's our first four A into Zach Morris territory. Yes. Uh, what are we talking about? So uh, we're going to do the reverse of sports planer. Mm-hmm. I don't know how this is going to work. I'll be perfectly honest because my deficit in sports right. is not nearly as big as your deficit in nerd. Maybe true, and I feel like that's true for everyone. Like right. there are plenty of people that watch Sports Center every day that have seen a Marvel film, right? Whereas what yep. is sports, right? Um, so I'm going to try something, but I'm also not aware of how. Non-nerdy my audience is, so I'm mm-hmm. going to try and hot take on this. Mm-hmm. Right. So this is Nerdsplainer. So I'm going to talk to you about speedrunning video games. Okay. So do you know anything about this? Like, let me, give me the 101 of where you're at. Yeah, so uh, I love video games, A. So there's the nerd. I'm guessing the speedrun is how quickly can I beat this game? So these are the videos of people on YouTube beating, like, Super Mario World in three minutes. Yes. Okay, with you. All right. So here's my thesis. Um... Speedrunning, I mm-hmm. think, mm-hmm. aesthetically, mm-hmm. if it had an ethos, is about uh, examining the programmable limits of a game's design by completing it narratively as quickly as possible. It's sort of an investigation of the game's code and central makeup by pressing it to the maximum, literally knocking the accelerator to the bottom. So you've got these uh, varying levels of speedruns. I'm trying to loosely categorize them without going to. So you have pure glitch speedruns, which are... It is not meant to be run that way because you found a mistake. So one of my favorites is the one in two worlds. Producer Ross, are you familiar with this? 
Uh, Two Worlds? No. Two Worlds is an epically shitty like PS2 RPG <laughs> uh-huh. that if you ignore the uh, tutorial, uh-huh. go left out of the woods, uh-huh. you will find the game's end boss because you were supposed to go right towards the tutorial. You piss the boss off, you kite him towards town, he kills you with one shot and a fireball, but you stand next to a shopkeeper. When you respawn, all of the people in town, because they are shopkeepers, are invincible and since the boss has attacked them, they are all slowly beating him to death with sticks. You can beat the entire 40-hour RPG in three minutes by <laughs> doing that. And that is not something they intended to design. You're sort of investigating, hacking the game by right. doing that. Hmm. Now, there's also things like Far Cry 4, where you are kidnapped by a horrible minion boss. He tells you to wait 15 minutes while he goes to four crimes. So you do that to sort of like, ha-ha, the narrative doesn't work. And then if you wait 15 minutes, he takes you to go buries your mother's ashes, which is why you're there, and then the game ends and you've beaten the game. Which is sort of a feint, because Far Cry 4 is otherwise an utterly predictable Ubisoft sandbox game that is the death of choice. So by giving you this one bit of actual choice in the beginning of the game, you proceed to go on your fatalistic, you know, choice means nothing, wandering through the Far Cry. Wow. So those are sort of pure glitch stuff. Right. Then you have glitch meets skill, mm-hmm. and you have classics. So like Contra, yep. Contra Code, yep. you do the code because they left it in QA. It's too hard to beat. Yep. Uh, but you play with that. You have Mario Secret Warp Tunnels. Sure. Again, left in for QA, but left in intentionally this time, not as a mistake, and sort of reward explanation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you move through that. And then you've got these increasingly complex pixel-perfect inputs to the point where people have beat Super Mario World and guess the record. Three minutes? Uh, you're actually close. Two hours and 29 is the WR. Real close. Uh, in order to do it, you have to do one level, and you have to do pixel-perfect jumps. So if you're jumping in the air and you hit the exact right pixel in the exact right place and then you do a second input, you can actually change the code of the game to where it auto-dumps you into the last piece of the game. What? And people <laughs> found this out with experimentation. And yeah, these are the tool-assisted runs. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, tool-assisted runs. So... Uh, Fallout 3, you start the game as a toddler where you pick your skills. If you run real fast past Liam Neeson's character through the door, you can play the entire game as a toddler. Awesome. Uh, Not intended. Mm -hmm. But that requires an extreme amount of skill to beat. So then you have these glitch runs assisted by an insane amount of skill. And then you have like pure speed runs, insane skill runs. So you've got Super Mario 64 runs, a game you're familiar with. Yeah. Yeah. you can have zero-star runs where you purely glitch through everything. Mm-hmm. You can have 16-star runs where you don't glitch through anything except the last wall by carrying a dog, I think, or something. Uh, and then, But then you have 70, 120-star runs, which are full-blown playing the game. These people are fucking doing calculus to calculate the fastest point between A and B, constantly meeting the record. It's getting insane. So you have got uh, F-Zero G6 or whatever it is, mm-hmm. which is a racing game, insanely fast. You have stuff called uh, shift boosting, where you're bashing against the side of the map, which if you're one pixel off, you go off. But if you don't, you get back on as a speed boost. Mm -hmm. And uh, so just insane stuff. So here's the thing. I think speed runs are interesting. They're kind of like sports in that they are competitive. You're constantly trying to beat someone. And there's performative access because you're trying to prove that you actually did it. So a lot of them are done live at like conferences. Or Twitch streams. Or Twitch streams where you have, like, dozens of people behind you doing things. And I think they're, like, easily easily an eSport because of the insane amount of skill required to do it. Sure. I think they're critically evolving. 
okay. into a form of performance art. And that's my hot take on this. <laughs> okay. I haven't heard from you in a while, so yeah. I'm going to nope. slow down. Nope. i gotta, I got to process a lot of this. <clears throat> I'll try to process it quickly. Uh, okay. Uh, what is performative about it? So what is the thing you're trying to demonstrate, the argument you're trying to make, the agenda you're trying to push by way of speed? Uh, I don't think – I think speed runs have led to something else that are performance art. And that is? Uh, I, th- I call them stunt runs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a stunt run to me is the opposite of a speed run's aesthetic intention. Mm-hmm. So if a speed run is you know looking at the limits of this game mm-hmm. through extreme human behavior, I think a stunt run is looking at the limits of human behavior, skill, psychology through the game. Instead of a way of investigating the game's mechanic, it's a way of investigating of just how fucked up the human machine can get. So uh, some examples would probably help. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, challenge runs, I think, are the bridge between stunt runs and bridges. So a challenge run is like, you have Bloodborne. How's it going? Awfully. Uh, <laughs> awfully. I've almost broken the disc 11 times. Do you know people have beat the game by not picking up weapons before? I don't believe that. And I don't believe uh, you. The, the <laughs> werewolf that you tried to beat with your hands because you didn't know you couldn't run past it. Right. They beat that werewolf and then every boss in the game mm-hmm. and then never leveled up. That's right. And people have done that. Yeah. And, and how have they enjoyed going out in the world or interacting <laughs> with other humans? Uh, well, it is nerd splating, not true. cool kid. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Uh, so way more screech, way less Zach Morris. Uh, so challenge runs are games the game like can be played in, yeah. but it's most of the time you're making the challenge yourself. But I will say that that, as an example, isn't really count because they at least have an achievement for mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. I think a true stunt run is a game as it was never intended to be played perverted through the process of being a game that a human plays. So have you heard of blind playing? I have not. So there is a man, uh, Terry Garrett, that has beaten both Oddworld's Abe Odyssey and uh, Zelda Ocarina of Time. No, he hasn't. And he is blind. <laughs> no. He, he beat it with sound. I literally couldn't beat that game with a guidebook sitting in front of me because I screwed up the guidebook twice. He turned up surround sound and beat it with his ears. Hmm. <laughs> So now I feel like... I can think of another example of that, less too. Of a yeah, it, and it took years. Yeah. And the way it worked... You mean it took ya ears. Ya ears. Ears uh, and it ears. T- And the way it worked is he has a friend that explains what's happening to the screen on him, and he memorizes the auditory cues about that and then eventually uses that. It took him years, but he eventually does that. His friend has also beaten those games blind, even though he is seeing... He has blindfolded himself. And this is more significant than like beating, say, Punch-Out Blind, which is another speedrun kind of thing, because that is basically just turning it into a rhythm game. Sure. Because uh, these are reactive sort of AI environments. It can change. You have to react according to sound, and it's sort of fantastic. My, my favorite, though, there is a Soul Calibur player named Kayan. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I believe yeah. she is Korean, that has beaten and won a tournament by looking at the audience and not the screen. So she has beaten people in Soul Calibur through emotive intelligence, reading their reactions of what's going on behind her. Okay, first off, fuck you. This is not a thing. Okay. It is totally a thing. Secondly, the only thing I can think of here, so Doyle Brunson, arguably the greatest poker player of all time, he wrote Super System. Doyle Brunson, I remember watching an interview with him when I was in college and I was trying to get into poker because that's what you do in college. Uh, And he said, I can play, I can win an entire home game of poker without ever looking at cards, just looking at what everyone else is doing. And I've always thought that was such a striking revelation for him that it really doesn't matter what I'm doing in terms of the mechanic of the game. What is more significant is the response the mechanic of the game produces, and that upon that, I can make decisions. Yeah. So 
Okay, one thing, though, to be sitting around a table with a bunch of people drinking beer who are in awe that Doyle Brunson is at the table and just watching them. Another thing, to win an unpredictable game format. With an opponent she'd never met or played before. With with at least seemingly infinite possibilities and in what could happen. I know you're limited by you know what the characters can do in moves, etc., without ever looking at the screen. This one seems nigh impossible to me. There's YouTube videos for everything I'm talking this about. This is as impossibly difficult as Batman versus Superman was is impossibly <laughs> bad, uh, and yet you've managed to remember this but, one. But here's bad. what I'm saying. I, like The game of video game describer to a blind man, or the game of beat fighting game through emotional intelligence, right. if that's not performance art, I don't want to go see performance art. So, uh, Well, I do want to interject a few other examples to give you more of a context uh spencer get in there uh there are people who have beaten uh dark souls uh two and three that's I think. exactly where i'm going uh, that actually just seems shocking in and of itself wait, but there are people who have true. beaten dark souls uh or anything about the one with their feet it's and, the same man uh, benjamin yeah. beersley gwyn has beaten both dark souls one and dark souls two with i want you to guess the controller form he used <laughs> to do this did you just give this away is it his uh, feet no. Well, there's part of it. I don't. I, I couldn't possibly. A rock band guitar. Oh, man. He has also beaten it with the bongos from Donkey from Konga. Donkey Konga? Oh, my God. He has used both to beat these games. Oh if, if that's not a virtuoso, I, I, I don't know. Well, what did he use those controls with his feet as well, or was that a separate one? Because I think uh, it's him the some... rock band one, he did the guitar and the bass pedal. Right. From the the rock band setup, that's yeah. the guy. Donkey Konga, he hit option buttons to switch controller playouts between the two congas, and the congas have two sides each. Yeah. So you basically have four inputs and a button to switch the four inputs, and he beat both games with. The well, no, did he do it with his on, with his feet as well, or is that? Uh, a I don't know. Game? I don't. I think that's there's separate. someone who's beaten the game by using some kind of controller with their feet. So yeah, I think it becomes like this performative. I want to be the guy who did this with this if I didn't do the speed run, but yeah. I think that's like performance art. If you can like look how adaptable the human brain is. I'm using this thing that has no business in any way, shape, or form mapping onto this. Sure. And I'm rewriting my brain to say play it with sound or mm. you know play it with. Mm-hmm. Then there are the social experiments. Right. Uh, so have you heard of Twitch plays? Mm-hmm. Uh, so Twitch plays Pokemon. No. Uh, so <laughs> Twitch plays will do a game that they put up. Mm-hmm. Such as Pokemon, the original right. Pokemon. Yep. Um, and they will play the game to completion uh, using inputs voted on by an entire internet audience of thousands. Love it. So they have beaten the entire game and they've beaten the entirety of Dark Souls through elections. Mm-hmm. Like they freeze the game. What button should we practice? Open the inventory, gets 5,000 votes. And so that's what you do. Uh, so that's a like Stanford prison experiment of gaming. Well, they also did anarchy, which is like whatever they just take inputs in order, and so like mm. so no voting. So whoever's they, fastest, yeah. yeah, whoever's fastest or could spam it the most. So they they alternated between them. And then there are what I call narrative stunt runs, where you play a game as was never intended, a game that's meant to simulate human behavior, and you <laughs> take it too long. So. Uh, SimCity 3000, there is a man who has built oh, the yeah. perfect city that is 6 million people long with no crime uh, through extensive geometric design, of which there is like a 20-minute YouTube video where he documents how he did it. And uh, this is a direct quote from him. 
Uh, there are a lot of other problems with the city hidden underneath the illusion of order and greatness. Suffocating air pollution, high unemployment, no fire stations, schools or hospitals, a regimented lifestyle. This is the price these Sims pay for living in a city with the highest population. Amen. It's a sick and twisted goal to strive towards. The ironic thing about the Sims is that they tolerate it. Mm, sounds like Zack Snyder's gospel, huh? <laughs> Yeah, so like, if that doesn't say something about society, I don't know what it does. And then there is the Civilization Two game, a.k.a. the Forever War, yeah. that a man put on a computer and had run automatically for 10 years to see what happened. Uh, the world is a gigantic hellscape with three superpowers that are going to war. Mm-hmm. He had to give up democracy a thousand years ago in order to survive against the two theocracies trying to destroy him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all cities have been dispersed because they keep on bombing each other with nukes. Huh. Um, now, I think there's something to be... I think these stunt runs are different than speed runs, even though they're going for the same... Uh, you know, I don't know, laudable, sure. I'm the top dog right. kind of thing. Here's the thing we agree on. Let me shatter on which we agree. Yeah. yeah. But I don't think that is a sports thing. I think it requires skill, but I think it requires skill like, you know, a, you know, way, way art piece requires skill. I think it's like, you know, cut piece. I think it's crazy performance art talking about humans, not games. I think that's totally fair. I also think I need another beer. Spence, what are you drinking? So this is a Telltale Tart. I'm starting to feel like we're a little bit homers here for Boulevard Brewing Company out of Kansas City. This is their Slightly Sour Ale, as that seems to be the theme of my beers tonight. I have to say, of all of them, though, this is my favorite. This is comfortably a Zach Morris for me um, in terms of sours. I I couldn't find the one I really wanted to drink today, and so this one became the backup. And I I couldn't be happier about it. What are we talking about? We are going to talk about Binge Binger. Mm -hmm. uh, And this time we're going to talk about TV shows that uh, we have been Stockholm syndromed. Uh, so someone forced us to watch it, right? And we came to enjoy it in some way. Now it doesn't have to be full blown. You're going to join the you know revolution, right? But uh, I mean that's possible too. Yeah. And, and and let's not be too subtle here. When you say someone, we we very much mean our significant others. Yes, Sarah yeah. and Brandy. Brandy forced me to watch these things, and now I've come to a point where I've grown to love them. In some ways, I suspect some of these shows are punishment for my drinking. Right. And I don't feel like the punishment fits the crime. Well, I think what happened is a lot of these times I, I would be drunk, and so I would you know kind of like not soberly agree, like, okay, go ahead and put that on. And that happened enough times, which says a lot about the state of my liver, that here yeah. we are. You know, no. But it's, I mean, it's only alcoholism, and I haven't done anything to deserve the Gilmore Girls worse than that. So that's where we're starting, huh? I mean, it could be, that's going to be mine. What's yours? Okay. So I thought a lot about this. There are, um, I would say 65% of the shows that I watch um, are probably uh, something that Brandy thought would be a good idea. And by and large, I, I thought she was wrong at first and right in the end. God, I hope she doesn't hear that latter part. Um <laughs> So, so which which is the one that causes me the most pain slash the most joy? Uh, it's it's Bachelor in Paradise. It's Bachelor in Paradise. So let me let me talk a little bit about what Bachelor in Paradise is for those of you who haven't yet really seen uh, the glory of this. So uh, the Bachelor and the Bachelorette. We're all familiar with that. Yes, producer Ross, you're on mm-hmm. board here. So. Here's what happens. 
uh, every season someone wins The Bachelor and someone wins The Bachelorette. And, you know, obviously these people get married and they're happy and they have kids, except most of them don't don't stay together. But that also means that a lot of people lose these shows, you know, as much as one can talk about losing a romance competition. People lose on The Bachelor and Bachelorette all the time. They go home. So what ABC did is they said, hey, look, a lot of these people are human shit shows, literally human shit shows, which is why they decided to come on The Bachelor and Bachelorette in the first place. Yeah. Many of them. That's what you do. What what else could we do with a human shit show? Well, we could make a human shit show. Just a whole spin bucket of a melting pot, if you will, of human shit shows. And so they brought all these people together. They put them on an island, all former losers of The Bachelor and Bachelorette. They put them on an island with an open bar. They give them like a dedicated amount of time, like a month. You have to find love here, and many of you are going to leave after this – well, some of you are going to leave after this month, even having proposed to one another for the purposes of marriage. But in the meantime, we're going to just put cameras everywhere and see how many of you can hook up with each other. So it is the Large Hadron Collider of Smut. I think it is the absolute peak of reality Are television. there, like, games and dismissals and stuff like that? Challenges on this one? Uh, no challenges. Not that like was Bachelor, Bachelor Pad. Yeah. Uh, no big deal. That I also know that. And so, but but um, every week it rotates. There are more men than there are women or more women than there are men. And at the end of the week, the women, if they have the power, have to give out a, the men. So if there are more women, the men will give out the rose. And if mm-hmm. there are more men, the women will give out the rose. And yeah. whoever doesn't get a rose at the end of that ceremony has to go home. So you might only be there two days. You need to start banging it out uh, in order to stay <laughs> an extra week for the free booze and the free island, yeah. uh, or this isn't working for you. So all that to say, I hovered around. I orbited the Bachelor and Bachelorette universes for years. I absolutely loathed it. And then once I couldn't figure out how to loathe it anymore, they made this perfect gift of shit, which was the Bachelor in Paradise. Probably my favorite thing on television. Your turn. I think Gilmore Girls is – like just under birth of a nation in terms of racism. Wow. Like it is unwatchably really? and I'm not gonna say it's like KKK. No gap there. Yeah, for okay, me. maybe a little bit of a gap. Right. But <laughs> I've been forced to watch a lot of it. And the the degree to which I hear that show screaming, I don't see color mm-hmm. is just Deafening to the point where my ears bleed. Right. Um, so first off, many of the humans in the show that we're supposed to find adorable are loathsome. Uh, Rory, the daughter, has broken so many horn- homes. Like she is a like desperate housewife at by the age of sixteen. Wow. Uh, she is just. It's just speaking of smut. She cannot love a man unless he is in a relationship. Uh, she also has an episode where she dates a. Very rich son of a hedge fund manager at her Ivy League university where she attends in the later season. And that she feels a little guilty, but not too much, because she wants to visit her mother. And he says, you can take my driver, who is a older black man. So the older black man drives her across the state to her town, to which she proceeds in the episode. To which later, 12 hours later, she leaves to go back home. The man has been sitting in the car the entire time. He has been sitting in the car the entire time, and she says, don't worry, I got him a sandwich. And I know that's just one episode, but that is the essential Gilmore Girls to me. It's it Stars Hollow is like this creepy racial experiment. It's like how Portland started off. It's like, hey, let's try eugenics in this small town. And everyone's just like, yay, hetero, you know, homogeneous group. And everyone that is of color is forced into this like subservient farcical role. And the good stuff that comes out of the show, like Melissa McCarthy, mm-hmm. is completely ignored in the reboot, which I've also been forced to watch. 
which is terrible. So would you say at this point you've seen the whole thing? I have seen parts of it. Now, the Stockholm Syndrome part, mm-hmm. I have grown to love hating. Right, absolutely. Like, you know, pain hurts, but like, were my knuckles hurting because I was bashing in the face of right. Richard Spencer? <laughs> It would it would like twist around to a a, a pleasurable right. experience, yeah. And I do take a specific joy in Sarah trying to watch this show, right? And uh, me talking about Lorelai and her jackboots marching down the streets uh, because it is just oh, it's like Aaron Sorkin if he was more racist, less sexist because there are at least some female protagonists, right. and talking Two, about at least. nothing. So and absolutely not that turn that you've talked about there. This is what strikes me about Bachelor in Paradise. So the uh, you've grown to love it because you love to hate it. Here's yes. the weird thing about Bachelor in Paradise for me. I, I have had that with Bachelor and Bachelorette. So I loathe them. I hate watching them. But I love watching them because every week some poor woman or man says something like, well, I really came here to find love. And it's like, did you? Because have you seen The Bachelor or Bachelorette? Or do you understand anything about romance? Whatever. So when I watch those, I cackle, right? Like almost angrily, like almost makes me feel like a bad person. I love seeing people get the shit into the stick on The Bachelor because I feel like you deserve to get the shit into the stick for going on The Bachelor. Bachelor in Paradise, though, there's something about its honesty, which is everybody here is the shit into the stick. So go at it, folks. Be each other's shit ends. Okay? And so there's something about the honesty there. So that turn for me has never happened with its progenitor, but has happened with its successor. That's an odd thing to me. Fair enough. Maybe that's why it's a Stockholmy thing for me. That's how I've grown to love it. It's that turn. And I just want to drop a daisy cutter on Stars Hollow. So wow. I'm empty. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Sounds like it. <laughs> Mr. Caleb, what have you chosen to consume this time? I'm drinking a Crown Valley Brewings Antique Amber mm-hmm. American Ale. And ha- and how would you rate that beer? Oh, this is a this is an AC Slater. It's medium bodied in mm. the same way a guy unlike AC Slater, unlike AC Slater. Mm-hmm. But it's the same way a, a man who was obviously slight and wane mm-hmm. and you know concave chested wow. would describe himself as medium body because <laughs> yep, yep. it's 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 pretty weak sauce it's not up for me but you know it's drinkable so it's no spano but it's an ac slater totally fair what are we talking about i think we are going to talk about uh letters from the listeners letters so from the listeners. people have uh in chimed in with uh dear mix six mm-hmm. and uh we're probably going to have uh you want to do comments for episodes? Let's do comments for episodes if you want to drop us a new Dear Mix 6 comments. Totally love uh, We might have to start a Reddit or something off page if we get insanely popular. Right. When uh, we get insanely popular. When we get insanely <laughs> Who doesn't popular. want to hear us with our uh, soothing voices? Drunk enough, this, is, uh, this episode is about the secret. That's We're actually right. writing a check to the universe. Yep. <laughs> yep. Uh, so anyway, uh, in this Dear Mix 6, uh, we are going to field a question. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there were a lot of really good ones on the group me. Really great questions. But uh, I don't want to do one of the really good ones. I nope. want to do one that I feel like has some secret right. depths. Weight of the universe. S'mores. Are they worth it? Yes. Not a sound effect. That was me. Yeah. Yeah. S'mores, are they worth it? All right. You want me to start? Yeah. I'm going to ruin s'mores for everybody right now. And I'm going to tell you the real truth to enjoying a s'more. One. Take it off the heat, freeze it, 
break it apart into its three constituent elements and then eat them independently because the combination of those things, the smelting, as it were, of the cookie, the, the graham cracker and the chocolate and the marshmallow ruins the graham cracker, the marshmallow, and the chocolate. I eat these things as three independent pieces. I buy s'more parts sometimes just to give a middle finger to the universe while I eat graham crackers, and then later I go back for some marshmallows, and then when it's really late at night and I want to feel good about myself, then I eat some chocolate. So, no, s'mores aren't worth it. They ruin their constituent elements. Dear God, I, I mean, I would not have picked this question had I know you were fanatical. It's a Band-Aid that you've ripped off, Caleb, Okay. <laughs> Why are you flagellating right now? My thing is that I feel like America just does more and more and more when really you should just eat a graham cracker, okay? It's how I feel about s'mores because they're delicious, honey made or not. I feel like we're almost to like a story of Spencer talking about, you know, going out camping with his family when he was a kid and like a serial kill. I don't know. Something something happened. Someone threw a dead cat. Is this going to end like Goodwill Hunting? Am I going to like, it's not your fault? Yeah. No, it's. It's not your fault. Yeah. So here's the thing. I, uh, first and foremost, I hate I hate sticky things. So the notion that someone would willingly put a marshmallow over a fire and make it sticky to the touch and then pull it off and leave the stickiness on on their now what have be, but become claws, frankly, just disgusting, grotesque, grotesque claws, <laughs> and then would try to interact with other humans. Watching watching a group of people make s'mores is my nightmare, right? So here's what's happening. A bunch of grubby-ass motherfuckers are sitting around a cat f- I campfire. I didn't even think of your crazy uh, OCD. Oh, it's crazy now, is it, Caleb? Yeah, cool. Yeah. Okay. It is crazy. Great. Yeah. They're delicious. I, would you say my OCD is the spawn of Satan? Uh-huh. Okay. Would you say it's a punishment? So watching people make s'mores is the most disgusting thing in the world, because here's some grubby-ass motherfuckers sitting around a campfire, already disgusting, right? And they're like, oh, here, let me put my hands all over this marshmallow and put it on this metal rod that a bunch of people have touched. Here, let me hold it over the fire and turn it into a literal fucking glue. A gelatinous, sugary glue. Here, let me pull chunks of that glue off this metal rod, which I've just held over a fucking fire made of wood from God knows where, okay? Let me pull this glue off. Here, here, take this sugary glue bit. You're forgetting the burned carbon button. Yeah. That's the charred ones. Yeah, yeah. The crunchy yeah. Oh, parts. Oh, God, yeah. Let's turn a marshmallow, a soft and gooey I gem. I feel like this is soon going to start sounding like it was written by Love. No, 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 no. A cyclopean, <laughs> towering, white, amorphous blob. I'm, I'm, the I'm, poured from its I'm glad that we've, yeah, we've brought this up. Okay, so here's what we've done. Squamous. We've taken this beautiful, this beautiful thing that nature and science have wrought, a marshmallow, and we've turned it into the Fantastic Force thing. So now I'm going to pull that thing apart, and I'm just like, I'm just like stretching it off this piece of metal. And I'm like, here, let me put it on top of this perfectly delicious. It prolapses as you bring it out. Oh, my God. <laughs> this perfectly, de- it looks like something you'd need surgery for. If someone showed up at the emergency room and they're like, hey, look what's happened to me, doctors everywhere would be, I, I, I don't know what to do. So, so let me pull this off the metal rod and not only put it on your perfectly delicious chocolate bar and your even more delicious graham cracker. Here, have my finger germs and have this crunchy ass disgusting motherfucker of a marshmallow that was once good. And here, let me put another marshmallow on top of it. It's almost insulting. It's like the thing you do to people after you fire them and you hated them, right? Like, get the fuck out of my office. Also, here's a s'more. (laughs) Because I'm going to ruin... I'm going to ruin... All these things that are great to you, like getting a Is that a how you know you're getting the pig slip? Like, no. You don't oh, see the, it smoke, the smoke's on the horizon ah, now. He's, he's, he's you, don't, you don't see it coming, right? You get the pink slip, and then they put a s'more on top of the pink slip. That's what they use to clothe. That. They don't use two graham crackers. They use a graham cracker and a pink slip. That's how you get fired in the future. Okay. okay. This in, in a dystopian future, we would all eat s'mores made 
made by some disgusting human. Okay, how do, you, how, do you s'mores. Feel, yes. how do you feel about s'mores divorced of this sort of like how the sausage is made process that you find so loathsome? So like, like, what say, if they're microwaved? So, like, say a s'mores pop tart, something that is self-contained. First off, a s'mores pop tart isn't a pop tart. Different conversation. No, Wait, what? How is that them. a different conversation? It's branded. It says Pop Tart on it's, the label. It's branded. Is that how we go about claiming things these days? So I'm just going to walk in and take shit from Best Buy, and they'll be like, "Hey, you can't have that." I'll be like, "Uh, uh-uh, I said it was Spencer's Bloodborne, so now it's branded." You so didn't manufacture that. Fuck all. The s'mores people. I mean, the the, the Pop Tart people. They manufacture. Producer it. Ross is off the bitch. Okay, yeah. so I'm a, sorry. yeah, a couple of no, things. No, it's fine. But right. you, he's he's a professional. Yeah. We'll, we'll save a, even. He's we'll go to a grocery school. store. It's there. It's in a cardboard box. It's labeled. We'll save a later episode for top five Pop-Tart flavors. S'mores doesn't make the top 20, okay? Mine will be as on point as yours wasn't earlier, is how I feel about Pop-Tarts. I don't think Caleb even likes Pop-Tarts. I really like S'mores Pop-Tarts. Oh, okay. (laughs) There's literally a look of... would be. I thought we were going to have, like, a logistical conversation of, like, ease of access. Like, a S'mores Pop-Tart. Yeah, totes worth it. Do I have to, like... Build an actual fire. Uh, maybe a s'mores isn't worth it. Yeah. But like, is this it is some the actual logistical process of making a s'more. You are over here. I, I, I thought it was like s'mores. Are they worth like this intense sort of like? Let's get. You could just microwave the ingredients. You yeah, it's like, or is it worth it in a microwave? Or is yeah. like the ritual somehow important to the taste to make it a s'mores? I didn't expect like this hardline s'mores position. Yeah. Uh, I feel as strongly about s'mores uh, as I do about the North Star in that it's in the North. (laughs) And uh, Captain America Civil War being the fifth favorite uh, of the Marvel films. And uh, and the need to breathe oxygen. I, I think it is significant to know about me that I don't want to. I don't want to talk. And I don't want to talk to you about the process of making s'more. Well, I think we like for the good of the podcast should leave this topic here. I, yeah. I shouldn't go forward. No, like, I'll, I'll get another beer. We'll yeah, try something. Else. I'm empty yeah. and and frightened, frankly. <laughs> I'm excited to ask this because of your face. Yeah. <laughs> what are you drinking? Yeah. So I'm drinking a Christmas ale by Schlafly out of St. Louis. <laughs> let, me, let me say one thing uh, good about Schlafly. This is like a compliment sandwich. Uh, actually, no, it's not because there's only one, <laughs> one good piece. Um, Schlafly makes the most delicious pumpkin beer in the whole world. The pumpkin Sh- ale Schlafly is pumpkin ale. the best. It is the anti-s'more. It right? is a Kelly Kapowski beer, hands down. It is a Kelly Kapowski beer. Which is ironic, given that the Christmas ale is a hard Jesse Spano, right? So, <laughs> yeah, we're not drinking that good thing, right? Not drinking that one. No, we're drinking the good things enemy, mortal enemy. <laughs> uh, the the good thing in this thing are the Voldemort and Harry Potter of beers. One cannot exist while the other also <laughs> lives. They are in they are in tension. Um, this beer tastes not unlike when you open a nice pair of leather dress shoes and get the smell of the leather sole, and also some potpourri. <laughs> so potpourri inside a nice pair of leather dress shoes is what this beer tastes like to me. And I'm sorry, I, think I missed that Martha Stewart episode. <laughs> yes, it is not a great thing to have around the house. I do not think this is Christmassy unless you hate Christmas. Caleb, what are we talking about? 
we are going to talk about um, something that I know is in your area of interest. It is. Uh, it's your form of study. Right. Uh, I believe you were your dissertation, correct? It was my dissertation. Around about there. Uh, I've done some uh, futurist, transhumanist writing in the past for a wonderful RPG called Eclipse Phase. But I, I'd phrase the question this way, and I'd phrase it this way intentionally. Spence, what's the problem with the singularity? That's a great question. And as you've noted a number of times... There are so many problems with the singularity as a form of argument, as a belief system, uh, a, a, as a likely end to this human experiment, all of the above. I want to focus on a very, very, very specific problem with the singularity, though, today in, in our segment, Drunk Enough. Too we, Drunk, I think is we what should we're probably uh, define that, though. Oh, yeah. Though, Give Ray K his due. Right. Ray K. Ray, Ray K. K. Throw him up. So uh, the singularity, as championed by a number of 20th century and 21st century philosophers, not the least of which is probably Ray Kurzweil. Ray K. Ray K. Uh, distant cousin of Ray J. Distant cousin of Brandy. So that's six degrees of Can separation. we get some air horn every time we say Ray K? Ray K. Or one of those like, boo, woo. Yeah. Like I'll a, uh, look into it, but that's, that's kind of effort. So right. yeah, I'm not yeah. sure. Producer Ross really mm. owning it. Yeah. Uh, so the singularity is the belief that at some point in the not-too-distant future. The distinction between man and machine, man and technology, man and computer, call it what you want, human and machine, will become so indistinguished that it would be difficult to understand the difference between the, between the two. So the, the idea that I could interact with some artificial intelligence is not, and not understand it as artificial, uh, but, but even farther than perhaps the Turing test, which has kind of become the benchmark test by which we would understand if a thing seems more than machine-like. Yes. The singularity is also a, a, a set of ideas that revolves around um, it is not just an inability to distinguish between humans and machines. It is also to the point where machines expand ever and onward at a far greater pace in their intelligence, capability, ability beyond humans. It is entirely based on like looking at the beginning of the invention of computing and then looking at the exponential rise of computing power. Well, yeah. And extrapolating that onto an infinite increase. Yeah, so and some of it even dates back. So if you read some of Kurzweil's earliest works, uh, and, and you know, Kurzweil is not the only prophet of the singularity. There are a million. Kurzweil's the one I'm most intimately familiar with uh, for two reasons. One was the subject of my dissertation. Two, um, got fortunate enough a couple of years ago to get a grant from the university where I was teaching at the time, sent me out to Singularity University, which is an institution founded by uh, Reike and uh, Peter Diamandis mm -hmm. of Abundance Peter Diamandis, who I peed next to at that conference. He was a very short man. I peed next to him. I did not look at his penis. Okay, It's interesting that you peed when your mind was downloaded into a swarm of nanomachines. Hey, you got <laughs> you to gotta dump that battery juice somewhere, okay? <laughs> Uh, so I also had the, the – really was kind of an interesting fortune of going out to Singularity University and watching Peter Diamandis and Ray Kurzweil talk to a group of incoming students to Singularity University who were there for uh, – at the time, I think it was like a seven-week-long intensive course in how to multiply – the effects of technology on the world, how to exponentially improve the living situation of humans on the planet. And so Kurzweil is probably the one I'm most familiar with. Anyways, all this to say that if you look at Kurzweil's works, it's not just computing power for him that points to the trajectory of the singularity. It is, in fact, the long history of innovation. Uh, and so Kurzweil really works from two mathematical models. One is uh, uh, Moore's Law, named after Gordon Moore, the co-founder of IBM. And Moore's Law is the notion that transistor power, the, the, the capacity of a transistor will double. Roughly every one year, two years, 24. Well, not transistor, CPU. 
Thank you. Yeah, yeah. we'll double mm-hmm. roughly every 12 to 24 18 months. 18 months. Yeah, 18 months there, right in the middle. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, there are some people who believe that actually, you know, by like 2016, 2018, we will have kind of hit the upper limit of Moore's Law. So Moore's Law is the ability for us to think smarter faster. The, the other Kurzweilian law is the law of accelerating returns. And the law of accelerating returns uh, is the mathematical model functionally, which would suggest that the time between any significant technological breakthrough is made shorter by its preceding breakthrough. So it took us, you know, uh, 1960 years in the, in the in the time of man to get to the earth to get to the moon. Uh, well, it took us 1900 years in the time of man to fly. It took us 50 or 60 years past that to get to the moon. Mm-hmm. So once you get one massive technological breakthrough, it shortens the time to the next technological breakthrough. So computing, yes, has kind of become the center stage for this conversation about artificial intelligence. Uh, but it gets even less scientific. But it gets even less scientific. Than that. <laughs> it, it, it almost becomes functionally religious. Not not to speak glibly about religion. Um, and so for me, the major problem with the singularity is uh, to be as uh, as uh, short and clear as I possibly can, having not been short or clear yet. The major problem with the singularity is not the logic of the argument, but rather the the nature of Kurzweil's discourse or rhetoric. And so here are these these thousands, if not millions of people, many of them who are incredibly wealthy, who are ad nauseum pouring funds into Singularity University, side projects funded by Kurzweil, Peter Diamandis, and the like. Yeah, not just money. No. Elon Musk money. Money that I don't understand. Musk money. Like, yeah, Musk (laughs) money. Exactly. Like, you tell me that's an amount, and I I tell you to go fuck yourself. Okay. Ray K, roll D. Ray K, okay, because I don't understand those kinds of dollar amounts. So what strikes me, though, about the Singularity is not whether or not the logic holds up. But that at the, at the heart of Kurzweil's discourse or rhetoric, his rhetorical form, is to convince people uh, that his credibility as someone who can adequately predict things should offset your skepticism around the likelihood of the singularity. So as a rational human, I can look at it and say that's not going to happen. But what Kurzweil has asked you to do is say, okay, I know you think that's not going to happen, but look at my track record of predicting things. This horse always predicts the next president. That's absolutely right. Okay. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Look, man, if that gopher fucking sees himself, it is going to be cold as shit, right? Uh, So what Kurzweil asks you to do is to set aside whatever might be a rational inclination and say, I get that. But wouldn't a rational inclination also look at best available evidence? And best available evidence is when I make predictions, 99% of the time, I think at one point in one of the books, he says that he's predicted, you know, X number of things and 92% of those things has come through, come true over a large span of time. Uh, Isn't that a more likely precursor to history than whether or not you understand how computers and technology works? And so it's a seed of self-doubt supplanted by an argument for credibility that I think is so absolutely fascinating and for me is at the heart of the problem of the singularity. For you, though, you have a different take because you've approached the singularity not so much from the uh, interrogative perspective I have in terms of its rhetorical form, but but literally acting at, uh, acting as a set piece yeah. for fiction. Yes. Um, and in that regard, I, I see the rhetorical thing because – uh, I will put it less academically because it's not my dissertation. The sheer balls on Kurzweil. Like, just the huge right. uh, daimondium balls yeah. on that man. <clears throat> Ray K's got big. Ones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's pretty Dyson amazing. Tier. To be like, mm. in the world of futurism, which is a centuries-long form of discourse in That's academia, right. and which predicting the future is deemed as an inevitable side effect of discussing the future right. and not the point. Yep. Because if you are a futurist, 
The second you're like, this will definitely happen. And you're not talking about the possibility of it happening and what that happening means about the present. Right. You have dated yourself to the point where you are no more than a mystic. Right. Where that is the academically accepted discourse within futurism. Ray K is just like, nope, it's going to happen. I'm always fucking right. And he just flops the dimonium on the table and you deal with it. Like, and and that is that is at the discourse level for Ray K the most interesting part of me. Just yep. the sheer gall. Of it all. The man doesn't care. Um, the fundamental assumption of it from a fictional perspective uh, for me is just sort of baffling in that it assumes that progress is linear, continual, and inexorable. And that just sounds to me like some corporate retreat bullshit that ignores, like, I don't know, the Dark Ages, like huge swaths of human history, like um, where things are lost, where we you know lose huge amounts of information. Um, so there are two conditions there. One is progress for for true singularitarians is exponential, not linear. Yeah. So things make jumps. They don't make. They, it's not a steady climb. It's a jump. And then two, uh, some of them talk about showstoppers. And I think even Kurzweil in in two thousand in, in uh, the singularity is near two thousand four's book. I think he might even use the phrase barring showstoppers, which is the belief that you know barring a nuclear war or an extinction like event, which would functionally reset humanity. His projection of the singularity is like twenty forty five ish, twenty forty twenty forty five ish in there. So so there are kind of these caveats built in, which to your point is to get out of the fatality of futurism, yeah. which is to say, well, yeah, I said it would happen if. Asterisk, right? And that yeah. was the asterisk. Yeah. And I wasn't talking about the future to discuss the future. I was talking about the right now. Right. In terms of the future. Yeah, it's absolutely. a rhetorical method yeah. and form of research. Yeah. And like even that shit is goalpost moving. Like, oh, on a long enough time frame, the sun is going to expand and eat the earth. And so we all fucking lose no singularity. Like right. if I can endlessly expand my timeline yeah. so that every dip becomes a statistical anomaly or a showstopper. Yeah. I can say anything can fucking happen. Um, so there, there's that kind of thing. And it's not like an anti-singularity happening. I want robo-Jesus to come along and cure my cancer mm-hmm. and be nice, Skynet. But <laughs> the fact, like, the sheer irony of it also gets to me that we have this sort of narrative that depends upon the development of skeptical critical thinking. And it's Intense experimentation mm-hmm. and intense repeatability of experimentation in order to achieve this sort of post-scarcity, everything's going to be fine, transhumanist ideal. Abundance, yeah. Uh, and then, in order to get there, we have just put our, like, monastic, like, messianic faith in the idea that, like, oh, just let computers do it. Like, it's going to happen. Sure. Just keep working on your uh, mechanical Turk algorithm and one day uh, it will reach self-awareness and lead us all to the promised land. And I, I just like there's, – there's so much shit that gets in the way there. You have all the great thinkers like Hawking and other people saying like, look, AI ain't going to be your friend. Like you have evolutionary imperatives to not murder each other. AI has none of that. Like you know, all that other shit, you know, there's just so many levels against it. So I, get, I, I hear you – I hear you uh, on on the things that are pessimistic, negative, a little bit skeptical of what the future looks like, right? So this Hawking notion that, like, AI is not going to like you, right? Duh. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I agree. Humans don't really care I'm, for me. And I'm also so, – with the pessimistic thing, I'm very interested to see where the transhumanist discussion goes in the wake of 2016. Oh, yeah. Because I feel like the anecdotal evidence of, like, progress is inevitable and wonderful has just gotten the strongest anecdotal cure. Yeah. 
in this year. That's right. As it could possibly get. That's right. If if you wanted to know what begat the world of future, future Blade Runner, yeah. it was probably the election of Donald Trump. Yeah. Let's not lie to Yeah, we will see how fucking faithful you are in this like showstopper being a statistical hiccup before yeah. we go back to the exhibitional goal after 2016. But but so I do want to ask this question because here I am, you know, I've told you that I, I'm I'm skeptical of the 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 argument functionally, the rhetorical form which gets people to believe in the singularity. But that, for me, is not a, a, an argument killer in whether or not I actually think the singularity is, is possible, probable, perhaps even likely. And I've got to say that despite all of the evidence you're pointing to, I see a real clear path for it. Am I hearing you say it's not true or I, am I hearing you say it's not good? No, you are not. Okay. Uh, you're hearing me say it's bad futurism. Because it's not a future. Mm-hmm. It is the future in mm-hmm. terms of how that argument is expressed. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> even in case in when it's not expressed that way, it is capital T, capital H, capital E, the future for how that argument is typically received. So I'm not saying the singularity is out of the realm of possibility. Right. And I'm not even saying it's undesirable. I am saying and that the way the argument has been put forth as this sort of like immutable, just wait for it, it's coming any day now, it's like bizarre to me. Because it seems so ironically detached from the same type of thinking that's going to get you there. So, um, I've, I, I, every time I hear about the singularity, I think of I think it's Cory Doctorow or maybe Charles Strauss who coined the term the singularity is the rapture for the nerds. You know that it it serves the same kind of religious function that it's Warren Ellis Warren Ellis calls it the nerd god delusion. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and also, I think 2016. I mean, it's honestly, it's not even the election of Trump per se. It's the fact that we're probably going to have another global financial crisis because the underlying issues of the 2008 crisis were never resolved. And with, uh, yeah, Bloomberg's twenty pessimist guide to twenty seventeen. Yeah. That's that's my kind of futurism. It's like not all of this shit's going to happen at once. Yeah, but like if one of these things happens, that's right. going to. I mean, it's like, not any one politician. That, that's good structural futurism. issues. That's good mm-hmm. futurism. It could yeah. be this, this, and this. And by talking about all these possibilities, I am discussing the now. And I feel like singularity frequently leaves the now for like the can't wait to be a cloud of bots floating around on my space station and that's kind of crazy to me that is kind of an interesting take on it because for me so the the most consistent singularitarians the one who in evaluating the singularitarian argument which is what i was doing for my dissertation the ones that seemed to me to be the most um consistent effective were the ones who were constantly looking for the small but significant breakthroughs in technology and science to say this this thing right here whatever this is this is an inroad to that thing. So it was using the now as a jumping off point to the then. And I always found that kind of interesting because that, to me, went farther in building the credibility for uh, faith gap, which was where we are now to where we're going to be in Kurzweil's terms, uh, in saying, look, I understand that this is a long way to go, but these little things make, make that distance infinitely greater every time they, they do something meaningful. And so while I hear you that it is um, overly locked in to one exclusive end to all of this, I also think that its premise doesn't work. Uh, the, the, the premise of trajectory doesn't work if we just say, well, computers, so who knows? Uh, because that is not a meaning. You know, I, I think about all these things in all, all these people in the, the early 1900s who, you know, kind of gained however much one can gain national attention in the early 1900s given the you know the media system who who were popular for predicting rapture catastrophe earthquakes you know life-changing earthquakes in large swaths of the country uh, by way of seismic data and 
religious text. Yeah. And I think, well, yeah, I mean, you know, there, there's really no value in that, in that effort rhetorically. There's no value in that effort culturally if you won't give me a very clear end to all of it, which is the rapture, you know, the death of millions, et cetera. So I understand it's overly limiting. I understand that it is um, so – Pun, pun incoming, singularly focused <laughs> on, on the direction it's headed. Can we get but, a sound effect for that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know. What would be a good sound effect ding. for that? Oh, that has oh. to be the MLG yeah. air horn. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Uh, but I also don't know in terms of generate. I guess what I'm saying is it's a little bit hard for me to figure out which comes first, the chicken or the egg. If, if I think this is a true thing and I need to generate uh, considerable capital, to make this thing come true, right? I need to generate the goodwill of the people who would fund these kind of efforts to get us to where I want to go. How can I not give them a very specific utopia to aim for in the future? And so the the A transition there for you, the future versus a future, seems to serve a very uh, constitutive purpose. Yeah, and I am of the mindset that if you're going to give me that end, okay, right? you need to discuss about like give me some practicalities and i don't want predictive practicalities i want like all right assume this predictive model to be true assume this exponential growth there's some shit we got to talk about in the very near term like say universal income because right. you ain't all y'all ain't gonna have jobs right or we got to completely change the education system if we're going to yeah. keep this shit moving and y'all ain't got jobs and you're just sitting there with no skills to help push our ai gods along sure. like and like there's some very real right now political right cultural, sociological discussions to right. have about singularity right. that I feel like we just hop, skip, and jump over yeah. for that nerd god you, you don't want Back to the Future 2 as much as you want an explanation about what happens between Back to the Future 1 and Back to the Future 2. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I hear you on that. Um, hey, guys, thanks for listening so much. Remember, you can find us all on Twitter. I am at Egon Zord, Egon like Egon Spangler, E-G-O-N, Zord, Z-O-R-D. Caleb, you are? I am at Hebanon G. Cal, H-E-B-A-N-O-N-G-C-A-L. And producer Ross? Uh, at Ross Payton. Just, just like it sounds. Yeah, yeah. Not, not a, not a whole uh, Payton don't, don't put a. producer. That's his title. Not that's, his that's a title. People. That's an honorific. Yeah, yeah. like doctor. Uh, but Payton uh, spelled with an A. I'm not Payton's place. Payton. Outward toast. Let's let's give this episode up to Ray K. To Ray K. Ray K. <laughs> Pouring out, out for our homies. Thanks, everybody. All right. I didn't get the clink though. Well, sound <laughs> well, That's your job. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
the nightingale could sing. 